Today's episode is brought to you by Slayhouse Publishing, recorded at Wayne Howard Studios. Hey everyone, this is Slayhouse Publishing presents Lit Bits. I'm Jeremy, and with me as always is Trevor and Curtis. Hey, hi there. And today we are joined in the studio by best-selling and I am multi-genre writing author and fellow Arkansan and fellow Fayette villain or Fayette villain. However, I prefer Fayette villain. You prefer Fayette, Fayette villain. villain. Fayette villain. <laughs> Marina Lostetter and also because this is an added episode, added bonus, Trevor's wife Kate is here with us as well too. So would you both like to say hello? Hello. Hello. Which is which? You will never know. <laughs> I guess I'll just have to figure it out. <laughs> which movie was <laughs> <It's> the- <laughs> <laughs> here, Everybody was clapping just now. There was a lot. There was a lot. There yeah. was a lot. There was also, a lot. I just like to say, I don't think I'm officially like best-selling or anything, yeah. just to like be clear, so it's not like false advertising. You're best-selling, like <laughs> you're best-selling in our hearts. Oh, thank you. Thank you, yes. yes. <laughs> Great best-selling selling in our hearts. Can we say well-selling? Are you well-selling? All right, yeah, that works. If we're being yeah. true. <laughs> Did Stacey Kate pull the same the same stuff on us when we interviewed I think so. her? She, we were we were talking to her and she was like, "I don't want to misrepresent anything," and we're like, "Misrepresent everything." <laughs> That's what we're here for. We walked into we walked into StokerCon like we were the biggest and baddest, and for sure, for I sure. shook so many hands. I should have been the mayor. We schmoozed and schmobbed. And that's not it was even a great word. time, but, um, but let's maybe switch <laughs> off of us and onto our guests. Well, if you insist. Yeah, I, I guess. I do. I do insist. <laughs> um, Marina, thank you so much for thank being you, here. Yes. We're yeah, so excited. Um, so let's just kind of kick things off. Um, how did you kind of get into um, just literature to begin with? And then um, how did you, you know, kind of start your journey writing? pretty much the beginning. <laughs> Back in the day when I was Which taught my was ABCs. That was, my mom used to read to me when I was little, and then in the fourth grade, my dad gave me The Hobbit, Ooh. and that was like my, yes, fantasy kind of introduction <laughs> there. I read a lot of like Nancy Drew before that, so. Oh, yeah. I, which you'll probably see, like, the mixture of fantasy and mystery is clearly a thing that runs through my life. Actually, so. I feel like there is a through line, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, as someone who <laughs> definitely read his share of Nancy Drew <laughs> and The Hobbit, uh, yeah, I definitely, uh, like, like recognize those influences, for sure. So, yeah, so even as a kid, I like to write stuff, and then eventually one day I was like, wait, people do this and get paid. <laughs> like, somebody has to do this for a living, right? So, uh, yeah. So I started looking up how do you submit stuff, and I started writing short stories, and I entered a contest and won the contest and got some short stories published, and then from there, I went to conventions, and then I met my agent, and the rest is history i guess yeah cool. <laughs> that's cool. really awesome um getting agented is is like no small thing right i mean i feel like that's um a difficult thing for a lot of authors um and it, it's it's kind of a blend of like like talent and luck and timing oh yeah so much luck and timing for me especially in my situation <laughs> just because uh so i met my agent when they were just moving out of editing into agenting and um, one of my friends was actually talking to them at the convention and was like, oh, have you met Marina? You know, sort of a thing. And she already had an agent, so. Um, so it was a really casual thing. And I was like, I was done with Numenon and I'd written half of what would become The Helm of Midnight. And you're not really supposed to pitch like a half written book, but that was kind of the one I ran with because I had the better like log line for that one. <laughs> and so I think that was the one that really like cinched their interest. And so that was my very stumbling half-assed backwards into <laughs> getting a good agent. I mean, so. it, it's awesome. Yeah. Um, Helm of Midnight is such an interesting book, too. Uh, and it feels very distinct from your science fiction, because, you you know, I feel like your science fiction um, feels, like, very familiar to, to some of the tropes that we see in yeah. a lot of science fiction. Um, but then Helm of Midnight comes in, and it, it just it feels so completely, like unlike anything else that you've written um, in an exciting way, I think. Um, what would you say are some of like your, your literary influences um, as you kind of began the journey into science fiction and then fantasy? So for my sci-fi influences, um, 
probably both the book and the movie Contact were really influential. Oh, yeah. Carl, Carl Sagan. Yeah. Just, like, the way that the characters thought about science is kind of the way that I personally think about science and, like, you know, examine different tropes and things like that. Um, and then when I, was, when I was a teenager, you know, I read Dune and Hyperion and that kind of thing. So, like, big space opera books were totally, you know, oh, that's natural. so you can see that in Numenon, right? Just oh, yeah. Big it's... space opera stuff. Um, and then, yeah, for fantasy, I read a lot of, like, you know, Tolkien and that kind of thing. But also what is so interesting is that stuff clearly didn't really influence my work. Like, I, you know, I fell in love with fantasy through Tolkien, but there is nothing Tolkienistic, Tolkien, Tolkien-like <laughs> about um, Hell of Midnight. And so when I was actually thinking about it, when I did an interview, like, right after it first came out sort of thing, thinking really hard about it, I was like, you know what influenced this? Final Fantasy X? <laughs> 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 it's kind of really where I can see, like, actually, where I get my real fantasy influences are, like, you know, Final Fantasy type video games, JRPGs yeah, yeah. that are just like, because there's a lot of world building that then gets subverted into like this dark place where you didn't realize that's where it was all coming from, sort of a thing. Um, so it was actually a really weird wow moment for me when I was like, wait, where did I get influenced? Oh wait, it wasn't even books. It was <laughs> the thing over here. Then. That's really cool. Yeah. I actually love that. Um, I've been a long proponent of video games just as storytelling because I think that rather unlike literature or even film right there's this like very immersive element to uh video game storytelling and, and as a result i think that um it's far more influential you know to those who are playing video games than i, I think people give it credit for you know we think of video games as like i don't know uh, like joust or you know like pac-man or something there's always this like <laughs> super like, mario brothers they'll rot your brain or something like that and it's like no i mean there's a lot of sophistication to um video game narratives yeah. i grew up on on the final fantasy series as well um i think it influenced a lot of my ideas of fantasy um but there was also something just entertaining about like this almost like a visual novel oh right? yeah yeah exactly yeah yeah very cool um i loved uh helm of midnight because it it doesn't feel like tolkien right um we've talked in the past about fantasy and and kind of some of the limitations of fantasy and how tired we are of the tolkien-esque fantasy um not because there's anything wrong with tolkien but it seems like there's just so it's such a heavy influence everything following in feels so derivative when they get into that kind of that that specific subgenre of fantasy it really does right. and, and when it comes to you know kind of modern fantasy anyway it, it definitely feels like um there are a few voices that still continue to just dominate this field you know um i think rothfuss is one um i think uh uh George R. R. Martin is another. It, it feels like they just continue to reverberate through, and it seems like the same, you know, European fantasy. There's not a whole lot of diversity, um, which is weird because it's fantasy. You would feel like there should be more diversity in fantasy. Um, so, can you talk just a little bit about some of the the choices that you made in um, kind of presenting diverse voices through books like? Um, your your science fiction and Helm of Midnight? Sure, yeah. So um, I can't claim that it doesn't entirely have a westernized influence because of, you know, just where I am and oh, sure. no, <laughs> what yeah, I'm doing. Course. And I am just me, a little white lady. So, it <laughs> so it's still going to, all of my stuff is going to have that white lady bent. Um, but <laughs> I, just the world in general is very diverse. So it seems really weird to like lock yourself into like one perspective with one kind of character and one kind of culture. Um, so trying to just normalize fantasy and sci-fi as the world is, which it's weird that we have to normalize the diversity of the world as is, because it is that way. So, um, <laughs> you know what yeah, I mean? You know what I'm I trying mean. to say? Like, it's very strange that we get stuck in this rut of like, like you said, very like medieval-esque, Western-esque sort of white dude bro <laughs> fantasy, right? Yeah. Um, which there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> There's just so much of it, right? White dude bro fantasy. Bro fantasy. It is. I mean, you know, it kind of is. There's nothing wrong with bro fantasy. Love bro fantasy myself, but sometimes you need not bro fantasy. So, um, yeah, so I do my part, but, like, you know, people like Andrea Stewart, who wrote The Bone Chard Daughter, and that kind of thing, you know, doing a lot more, a lot more to bring 
diversity to the table than I personally can. But yeah, me trying to normalize the fact that there's lots of types of people in the world is really where I kind of try to do my part with my stuff. Yeah, I think it's um, needed. Yeah. I mean, we, we see that a lot in the cast of characters in Numenon. Um, they're a very diverse cast, um, which is interesting because, uh, you know, it's like the same, same, however many characters. Was it, what, how many characters were there on Numenon or, or how many people? I can't remember. Oh, uh, yeah, I don't know. Like a, it, it, <laughs> there's a like lot. A, so, yeah, there's like, like hundreds of thousands of people on each yeah. of the convoys. Um, and then each chapter is basically told from a different character's point of view. And we're going through generations and like the whole series is over hundreds of thousands of years. So forgive me if I don't remember specifically how many <laughs> characters I wrote, but there were a lot. That's something I'm interested in from a, a craft perspective. Cause when Trevor and I always tackle these things, you know, he looks at the literary criticism, um, cause that was kind of his background. I always look at the craft cause that was my background. And that was something that really caught my eye that I'd mentioned to Trevor, and he's like, oh, yeah, definitely, is the way you introduce that idea of what Numenon is compared to, like, say, a phenomenon, and then how you introduce, introduce I can't talk, these Numenon ideas, these, like, philosophies in each of your chapters. And I just wonder kind of what, I mean, as a writer, we talk about, like, pantser versus planser versus, you know, like, a, do you plan things out or do you, you know, do you just write on the whim? How do you incorporate such kind of intricate ideas into your story? Was it something that was within the, the initial drafts or did you come back to it and say, I need to insert this or? Um, all of the above. Okay. Uh, cool. <laughs> so yeah. Numenon started out as a short story, actually, which is weird to think about with how that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like I could that see kind that. Of fits yeah. because each chapter is its own, is its own short story. Yeah. yeah. So I kind of cheated and I wrote a bunch of short stories <laughs> because that was where I was comfortable at the time and then I turned them into a novel. Um, so yeah, so it was actually easier to organize it that way because it takes place over such a huge period of time. It was easier to take like, all right, here is a character and here is a theme I want to explore that plays into the larger yeah. overarching plot. Mm -hmm. um, but I can just take a moment in time and in this place and in this setting that I've set and discuss a certain theme with a certain person um, and just follow that through line really tightly. So I was able to like plot out the larger beats of where I wanted the whole series to go and where I wanted each novel to go. And then within that, I had a lot of freedom to just be like, well, wouldn't it be fun to talk about this right now? And like, you know, especially because I was writing the series, I hadn't written it completely before we sold it. We, I just sold the, the first novel. Um, it was great to be able to come back and see what people's questions were about how things functioned for book two and book three, meaning like there were ideas people would be like, oh, I wonder about that thing. And I'm like, oh, I can, I can write a story about that thing because <laughs> of the way it was written. I'm not like locked into this giant, you know, right. thick plot, like with, you know, something like Hell of Midnight, which is a very like tighter, it all takes place over 10 days, you know, one place, one cast of characters. Because I had so many people that I could play with, um, it gave me a lot of freedom to just be like, well, I want to write a story about this within this overarching plot so what i think is what's great about that novel too is like all of the characters sound very distinct you know they have unique concerns and unique needs and and as a result even though you know the characters have the same name you know th throughout their many iterations and they're clones too right, right? They're, like, but they're clones and, and yeah. so it's it's interesting how you kind of play with this just massive concept. I feel like I'm just going to come back to that, yeah. how you play with these massive concepts. Um, but it, it felt like you were playing with these massive concepts, you know, with characters who um, may be the same kind of like generational line, and yet they feel very distinct from the iterations that kind of came before them. Sure, yeah. And that was actually something specifically I wanted to, to do because of the way clones are often treated in sci-fi. They're treated like they're more like the same person, like literally, you know, this clone isn't like we put you in a, you know, replicator and now there's a bunch of you. It's literally just your twin, right, basically. Right, they're yeah. genetically the same, but you're living a whole new life. So I wanted to make sure that it was clear that yes, they're trying to like shove all of these people into a bubble because it was also about like, what kind of, you know, structures are you born into and then how do you navigate right. that structure? Um, but I wanted it to be clear that these are, even though they're all clones and they all have the same name as they're born throughout these many hundred thousand years, that they are distinct people with their distinct problems and distinct lives and distinct loves. It really provides a, a great um, response to that whole nature versus nurture debate. You know, are we just genetic makeup or are we, you know, the product of our environments? And this is a really great way to address that, I feel like. 
It's because you, that's what you have. You have these genetically similar individuals who are raised in these, even though they're in these spaceships, like years have passed and time is passing. And so you see that the environment is changing and you see exactly what that can do to a personality. I think it's a great conversation for that, that kind of topic. I agree. Yeah, it, it, definitely a highlight of those books for me was that conversation. And I think that conversation continues at least a little bit into activation degradation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, because the, the main character is a, is a clone. Yes. Uh, doesn't necessarily, you know, thinks of himself as a robot um, and kind of has to, to understand the way that his experience has uh, kind of uh, like structured the entirety of his life, right? So grabbing onto that idea, I kind of want to broaden out just a little bit and think about um, what is the role of speculative fiction for you, you know, in your philosophy, um, what is or, or, or what does spec fiction do for us, whether it be science fiction or fantasy? Like, what's its utility in Why the Why are we exploring yeah. with this medium these specific things? I think it does let us kind of get outside of our own heads a little bit. So you're, t- you're always going to be in conversation with when you are creating the thing. So you're always talking to the present. But you're talking to the present in a what-if scenario so you're like all right let's try to let's drop what we're actually dealing with right now for 10 seconds and let's think outside of ourselves and like what if we put this in a slightly different scenario where it's away from us so you're kind of trying to get distance from it while actually bringing it home um and i think that's really the unique thing that sci-fi fantasy can do um obviously it's also fun and you get to explore like you know fun great ideas and (laughs) what ifs in like really fun ways but also what ifs in really important socially conscious ways at the same time yeah, I I come back to the social consciousness in your book, um, which is kind of what spurs the question for me. I'm constantly thinking about what is the utility of literature. Um, I'm obsessed with story. I'm obsessed with literature. I have been ever since I was, you know, three years old. Um, I would just carry books around with me and recite Dr. Seuss off the top of my head because I couldn't really read yet. Um, it, it's always been very important to me, but but as I continue to get older, I continue to, to come back to like, why? Why is it so formative to me? Why is it so important to me? And why do I feel this urge to share literature with everyone I meet? Um, it, it, it's like, it does not matter what the occasion is, I will hand someone a book or I will give someone a book recommendation. Um, when I talk to people, I'm like, what are you reading right now? You know, and it's because I'm constantly trying to find the connective tissue, you know, between us, like through the medium that we share, right? Um, And and I think your literature, one of the reasons why I love it so much is that um, it feels very socially conscious. It feels like it kind of understands that purpose for literature it it has um i don't want to call it like an agenda but it has something to say and it it provokes a discussion i think with those that read it um it's pride month happy pride month everybody (laughs) and i think that in this moment especially um the discourse surrounding Pride Month is kind of changing because the discourse around the LGBTQ plus community is is kind of changing, right? We've seen a lot of political action um, that is kind of uh, endangering, right, this community. Yeah. So um, I want to dig in just a little bit here about um, you were talking about how you try to make more representation representation through your books you know put characters in those those books that are representative of these different communities that are representative of real life and i don't think that's something that a whole lot of authors are doing right now um so if there's a question in here i think i want to dig into you know like what is the the importance or the the impetus right now to create these stories you know in this moment of changing discourse I think the good thing is actually there are a lot of authors that are digging into this. So it's it's becoming more of a, and I think it has historically been there. Um, it's just been framed in a way that 
allowed a lot of people to not really engage with it on a realistic level. Like, sure. you know, think of like the left hand of darkness, right? Oh, There's yeah, of course. all sorts of gender discussions happening in the left hand of darkness, which was published in 1969. Sure. Um, but I think it allowed because of where they were politically at that time and socially at that time, people who didn't want to engage with it on a realistic level didn't have to realize that it relates to their lives and there are, you know, there's actually queer people out there that, you know, right. are experiencing gender different than you are. Um, so for me, I, so whenever I write a character, and this is gonna sound weird, but I always treat them like a person. So, which means that you lead with empathy. You try to imagine that this is a real person and that they are having real struggles and you, as best you can as the author, or me as best I can as the author, try to put myself in their shoes. What am I experiencing? What, how, why am I reacting this way? And you try to reach a real empathetic vulnerability, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, isn't always purely possible when you aren't actually part of any given community, but you do your best. And I think the good thing about today is we do have a lot of authors that are from the community who are rising and shining right now, like Charlie Jane Andrews, you know, is out there doing oh, amazing yeah, things. Um, so it's really important just to, to treat characters like people and to understand when you're looking at a different walk of life, um, to go at it with uh, sensitivity, and a real, how do I want to put this? Like, understanding that you are the way you are for real depth of reason, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you you haven't, like, casually picked anything about yourself. Your personality is your personality because there's a depth there. And that's the same for characters. There's no surface traits. They might come off as surface traits because you barely touch on them in the story, but they're they're real. There's mm. There's a reason people aren't just randomly picking off the top of their head, I think I'm gonna be like this today. That's who they are, so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of chewing on this uh, just a little bit here. We can I agree, well, well while Trevor's chewing on that, I wanna <laughs> add to it because I have, I do teach, um, I do teach creative writing and I've, you know, I've, I've looked at this and this is something I do stress to kind of reiterate what you're saying. I do stress this to my students that these characters are real characters and I go into, um, very much in depth, you know, how the importance of discovering what it is about your characters that make them the way they are. Do the research if you're, you know, I don't think it's such a bad idea if you as a white woman or me as a white male look into these characters who are different from us as long as you said we treat them with that empathy and we do our research. We need to be able mm. to understand and fairly and correctly identify and illustrate these people and not stereotype them or vilify mm. them Make because the of these mistakes yeah right before and right. sensitivity readers are amazing yes like just mm. be like hey can you i will pay you will you read this and tell me what i messed up yeah <laughs> yeah no doubt people are so great about that like yeah it's amazing yeah. well and especially because i think there's a i mean there's always the threat of like tokenism yeah. right? yes and and whether you intend to or not you know you create a character that um may be different from you and um you know you you make certain assumptions for that character um and and you know sometimes you can just you miss you miss oh, yeah. the mark you, right? yeah. you don't know what you don't know is yeah. the thing that which is why sensitivity readers are so great is because you you sit there and you think okay i've done a great job i'm thinking really hard about this and then you send it off and they're like but you completely missed this very important cultural aspect and you go yeah. oh yeah see I, you don't know what you don't know yeah. so all i do is help you figure out those those spots where you can't you can't yeah. see everything. Yeah, 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 yeah. The blind spots. Yeah. You were talking about fake corporate um, oh my gosh, diversity, I, I and that kind of goes it. along with that, to <laughs> that tokenism. I hate it. And I wonder how much of it is intentional and how much of it is like, oh, we just, we're out of touch. And yeah, oops. I, I really hate tokenism. Um, I, I just think it's so just anti-representative, you know, and I think that the danger there, of course, is that... Um, you know, you can write a character or you'll create a character um, and, and if you don't do it well and they're the only character like that character, you know, you kind of are making a broad symbolic statement about how you view people like that character. Yeah. You know, so I think um, 
the portrayal of black people, for example, is like the, you know, kind of the classic token. When you only have one black person in your story and you treat that black person a certain way, whether it be stereotypical or not, you can make the mistake of kind of like sim symbolizing or, or telling people this is how you view all black people. Right. Right. And that's, that's a problem. It's, it's one of the reasons why like to go real popular in the Marvel movies, right? I get really upset about um, the way that Black Widow is portrayed in, you know, Age of Ultron because she's the one woman on that team. And, um, and there's this whole discourse about like her being a quote unquote monster because she can't have children, which sends the message to all women, right? You're supposed to bear children. That's a really old message, too. I mean, that's, uh, that's yeah. like and it's, spinsterhood. It's fucked up, <laughs> yeah. you know? You know? <laughs> and even if you wanted to make that a part, a, a quintessential part of Black Widow's character or whatever, like, why does it have to be the one woman on the team? You know, you can't have, like, you and need... And also, why are you using that as, like, your explanation for why you're killing her off? Oh, well, you yeah. didn't reproduce. Yeah. <laughs> I hate that. You know, that goes to, I think that also goes to like another side of that same coin. And that's the question we have to ask, why do we need this character in our story? And it doesn't, and I'm not talking just about plot. I mean, I'm talking about the themes that we're addressing as writers, the things that we are um, looking at, the ideas that we're trying to push. Why do we need this character? Because if we don't have a good reason for having, I think, that character in the story, um, then they can be that they can come off as like this token character like oh look i just included somebody here just to check check a box and right. yeah they box need checking. to yeah they don't necessarily even have to play a huge role but you want them to speak to something within the story that makes them necessary to be there i think i think that's true i i, I keep coming back to representation and the importance of representation because i've had i've had this conversation constantly with with just about every person i've had this conversation with you kate like a thousand times like why do we need a quinceanera barbie right i'm like i'm super gung-ho for represent representation in barbie because i think there's like this cultural tradition for barbie that she's always like a white lady and she's always super tall and thin you know glamorous or whatever and it's like should we not have more quinceanera Barbies? Like, why is there only one of them? You know, like, right. we should have Latina Barbies all over the place. If it were naturally done, there would be more than one. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And mm -hmm. it, I Yeah, and that's really the thing, is that, like, people just exist. And that seems exactly. like a weird thing to have yeah. to say, but I feel like whenever I'm having these discussions, it's always like, all right, but there are, there are just people, and they right. are just there. <laughs> so, like, why aren't they, why can't they be in the story? Because, yeah, like, yeah. they exist. And, so and we're, should we're... we not see more of that? Yeah. I mean, not just in literary fiction, but especially in, like, science fiction and fantasy. Oh, yeah, when it's, especially so... when it's the future and they're like, look, you know. Exactly. <laughs> I can yeah. imagine yeah. a million aliens ten ways to Sunday, but I can't imagine... That's when a black person in like, space... Yeah. <laughs> All right, I'm going to get on a hot topic right here. Uh, hot take. Hot remember, take. this is an, the interview portion. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I know it's the interview portion, but, but I, I, I have to. I'm obsessed with Star Wars like Star Wars is I'm just it's just my dirty secret which is not even a dirty secret I'm just obsessed with Star Wars you rascal <laughs> so you're the one doing these Star Wars updates for our podcast <laughs> yeah, that's great gasp um, Obi-Wan Kenobi is airing right now and there's a character a black character in Obi-Wan Kenobi um, called Reva and um, the internet hates her and I don't know why and I think the only reason that they hate her is because she's a black woman in space. Yeah. Not allowed? And it disappoints me. It disappoints <laughs> me so much where they're sitting there with a dude who can fucking move things with his mind, but they can't imagine a black woman doing the same fucking thing. Sure. I just hate her on premise because she's the villain. It doesn't matter to me if she's black sure, or white. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. She's still the main villain. I just want her to die. Like, <laughs> hate, but there's like hating, like loving to hate something, right? Which is like yeah. when what you feel about villains, yeah. right? Because you're like, right. oh my god, I hate them so much. And then like having some unreasonable grudge that they exist. Which I, is, like, I, two different things, right? I mean, I do have something. I, I don't hate her. I mean, I hate her as the villain, obviously. I mean, I want her to die too. But not. it has nothing to do with race. Yeah. I, I am bothered in some scenes by her delivery. 
just maybe the actress, the way she's delivering the lines or the way she's being directed to deliver the lines. It's also Star but, Wars. I'm just, I'm going to well, defend her really hard right now because, like, I mean, yeah, Star I Wars has it, so some I, wooden... I'm just... <laughs> okay, okay, okay. <laughs> Whoops. I have no opinions shouldn't, on this Shouldn't, shouldn't uh... Okay, let's... Yeah, yeah, we yeah, no, 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 you can keep... You could, sorry. No, I'm let's... Not, yeah, clearly. let's get back I'm to so the... Let's get back to the So when we get to... You I'm know, cool about talking about it. I just am... I have no input because I haven't seen it. Yeah, same here. I found the one person who's a sci-fi writer who doesn't know Star Wars. I know Star Wars, I just haven't seen that. Gotcha. You should watch it. It's really good. I just take his word for every Star Wars information. Nobody's as obsessed with Star Wars as I am. I can guarantee it. Obsession doesn't even cover what it is. It's not the right word. It's not the right word. We need to invent a new word for We need to invent a new word that's obsession on steroids and crack and alcohol and any I, other I am, illegal drug. Me, Santa, we call it brain rot. Let me, let, me, let me put this into perspective for our audience who has also listened to the Star Wars update. I was taken to my first Star Wars movie when I'm 10 years older than Trevor. I was taken to my first Star Wars movie when I was two years old and Star Wars, before it was called A New Hope, was re-released into theaters. So I have seen just about every Star Wars in the theater as it's come out. And I the, the famous story of that is I was two years old watching the original Star Wars when Luke is out looking for Obi-Wan and the sand person pops up, it scared me so bad I pissed all over my mother. Oh, no. <laughs> so. It is scary. I would, as a as a little kid, my parents still had vinyl, and I could pick up the vinyl of, like, whatever soundtrack, Star Wars soundtrack we were listening to, and I would put them on the record player, and I could start playing it, and I could tell people what part of the movie it came from. So I, and I had like the big R2-D2 and I had all the toys and I had all this, I was a huge Star Wars fan. And then I met Trevor <laughs> and I realized I'm not a big Star Wars fan. Like, like, I'm giving it up. Like, like, like he, he blew it. Like I didn't know about Han and Kip. Or skip. <laughs> nobody into, knew, nobody or, does. No, I didn't know that you awful. peeing on your mom was ever going to make it into this. I brought a lot to this today. podcast. No, 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 not today. It was not in today. our stories. <laughs> this was not recent, people. Sorry. We did not script this <laughs> portion no of the interview. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, it, I mean, just coming back, right? I, I think that the, the problem, you know, the, the problem is is just like that that representation is so vital, sure. right? Yeah. And we need to see it reflected in more of our media. Um, it's one of the reasons why I, I think activation degradation is so special to me um, because it, it has such an interesting cast of characters and each one of them, you know, is kind of dealing with their own stuff, their own feelings. Um, you know, there are uh, some some gay characters in there. There are um, uh, a couple of intersex characters in there one of the things that I loved was like the characters as they meet each other in this future, right? This far distant future, they meet each other and they greet each other with their names and their pronouns in the same breath. And I find that refreshing. I find that level of representation, the normalization of that representation to be so vital to the way we see the world. There, there even was a little bit of clumsiness as the main character, you know, the robot is meeting everyone and they ask the robot what their um, pronouns are. And the robot just says it. And, and they have to, even they have to go through this, this like process of normalization, right? Where they have to like reorient their mind around that particular. Yeah. And even pronoun. I had to reorient my mind because in an earlier draft, I had it giving its pronouns as it. And then the. Um, crew basically being like, oh, no, no, we don't call people it. Yeah. Um, and I had that through, and I just had, all right, and they're going to change its pronouns to they. But when I sent it to my sensitivity reader, they were like, you know, but if you're actually talking about respecting people's pronouns and how they see themselves, this is genuinely how it sees itself. And so immediately shutting down its own view of itself is being counteractive, you know, counter... Yeah. It's not going with what you're trying to say. Yeah. Um, so I had to sit back and be like, okay, yes, no. It is a perfectly fine pronoun if that's the pronoun it wants to use because that's how it views itself. If it changes its mind in the future, that's fine. But right now, Ainsley's 
pronoun is it. So right. it's an it. <laughs> it's but it it's also wonderful, I think, on, on both sides of this representation, right? To see the characters as they are representing themselves, you know, with their pronouns. Right. Um, I think that's beautiful because, you know, it's only going to become more prevalent in our culture to yeah. do that. Right. But I also think it's beautiful to see the same characters who do that with such fluency still struggle with certain pronouns, you know, still struggle to reorient themselves toward the use of a particular pronoun, which I think for, for those of us who are cishet in the room, you know, sometimes trying to reorient ourselves to how we represent each other can be difficult, but they make it in good faith. Right. And that right? was what I was really going for is yeah. that the whole point is that you're trying really hard to understand, again, that this person is a person and how they view themselves is valid and true. So you don't get, you don't have the right to just project onto them however you think they should be representing to you. So. Right. Yeah. 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 It was, it was really masterfully done. Um, I absolutely love it. And, and I think the same thing of, of Helm of Midnight, which is also playing with some really interesting, um, you know, kind of symbols or motifs. I think a lot about the masks um, because the magic system that you've kind of created is, uh, uh, you know, kind of centered on these objects that Im Im imbue the, the wearer with, you know, certain advantages or, or what have you. Um, but the masks in particular are really fascinating because um, these characters put on a mask and then there's like this... Um, completely separate personality that it, that inhabits the mask and then flows through them um and, and i think it, it opens up unique questions about um you know the, the kind of feeling of of inhabiting um the wrong body right? right or the feeling of having to compete with um these these very distinct persons right which one when we're wearing this mask you know which person am i who is the authentic being you sure. know kind of represented here and there's always this threat of you know kind of being consumed by the mask can you talk a little bit about some of your process for creating these masks and, and, and kind of creating this um, this magic and, and maybe what it allegorizes for us in this same breath? Sure. Um, this one's going to be a little less deep because it was not really that conscious of an allegory with the, <laughs> <laughs> the mask. Wearing. I mean, it should have been more conscious, but it was not. Um, I start, oh, this one also started out as a short story. So many things I do start out as short stories and then get expanded, apparently. Um, but this one, uh, I had just gotten married and just gotten back from my honeymoon, and we uh, were in Costa Rica. And uh, the Baruca tribe there makes these really beautiful balsa masks. Mm. Um, and we, we got a couple of them, and they happened to be a jaguar mask and kind of this demon mask, which, having read the book, you know those are two masks that are very important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I kind of just was looking at the mat. I was trying to f come up with an idea. I was trying to come up with a new way to like start a story. Cause often you're like playing with an idea for a while and then it just kind of like coalesces into something. I was like, all right, I'm going to look at some objects in the room. I'm going to point at them <laughs> and I'm going to make a story out of it. Um, so the mask for one, um, I think time in a bottle was playing or something oh. like the song or, you <laughs> know, I was like, I'm going to do make money out of time. And then what was my other thing? I forget now, but anyway, but it was, it started out with, um, Melanie, who's the healer, her whole backstory there of basically struggling with a mask, um, was the original short story. So, um, I just went from there and then I kind of branched out into like, all right, well, what if one of these personalities in these masks was a serial killer? <laughs> Which is and, a great premise. And then what happens you. after that? So that's kind of where that one went. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, I, I loved it. Um, I love it because I think, again, it just it, it opens up these interesting questions that we ask ourselves as human beings. Y you know, who are we at any one point in time? And I felt for me anyway, and, uh, you know, maybe it wasn't intended, but um, I felt for me the interest there was, was kind of um, just a conversation around again that 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 person of uh, or that idea of persona right of person which um you said comes from an ancient it's greek the, it's the latin word for mask or latin, yeah, 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 yeah latin yeah. for mask right um so to be a person is to wear a mask basically right there's yeah. this idea of of kind of the performance or, or the 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 performative self right, right? sure mm -hmm. yeah you know who i am on this show is very different from who i am outside um 
and I think we, you know, the question that we, we kind of boil down to is like when we put on these masks, you know, which is the authentic self? Uh, and I think too that that leads into um, kind of a question of like surrounding um, whether it be, you know, being gay or, or having to have, you know, kind of these performative moments where, you know, maybe you're trying to play to a room because there's a danger in not playing the right way, right? Oh, sure. Or, or yeah. you know, uh-huh. kind of putting on the, the same What's front. that called? Code, code switching? Yeah. Isn't that what that's called? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or yeah. masking. Or masking. Literally, masking. Yeah, masking. Literally masking. Yeah. 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 And, and then, um, you know, also regarding like transgenderism too, I think, you know, this, this uh, concept of, you know, feeling alien in your own body too, um, kind of aligns a little bit with, with some of the activity of the characters in the, in the book as they're kind of struggling with, you know, the, the magic that they're dealing with. Um, yeah. Cause actually the direction I was going at it from when I was writing it was more the like bodily autonomy direction. Yes. So a lot of the way the magic system works is they, they take things from people to put into enchantments, right? So you're taking out emotion, you're taking out time, you're taking out knowledge. Um, so it's a lot about what do we get to do with our bodies and what's imposed on our bodies. Mm. Um, so it does come back to that, but in a more, it was more of a grounded sense of literally what is imposed on us physically um, that just kind of thematically evolved into the other, what gets imposed on right, us, right. you know, from a social standpoint, right? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's super awesome. So um, let's kind of switch gears a little bit and maybe talk just about some of the, the writerly things that you do and, and some of the, you know, kind of business of making books. Um, I've, I've noticed, uh, as my brother has sent me, like, more and more, like, booktubers or, um, you know, like, book talk enthusiasts, um, there seems to be, like, a growing audience in those spaces yeah. for you. Oh, yay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I, I know I there's mean, a lot of book talk. I haven't personally been on book talk. TikTok scares me, but that's just me. Because <laughs> me too. No, no, no. Like, no, I don't no. want to do it. Yeah, it's, yeah oh, me too. I'm throwing my phone on the floor. I'm, I'm too old. Ignore that. Yeah, Ignore that. I, yeah we're, we feel like we're too old <laughs> for TikTok. I'm too old to TikTok. Oh, I'm all on book talk. Oh, good. Good. Somebody is what they're talking about. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, it's all about the book talk. In a room of five people, it'd be weird if not one of them were on TikTok. <laughs> so, uh, you know, just thinking about these new spaces for an author, you know, how important are these new these new spaces and these new voices um, to an author? And, um, you know, how do you think it, it kind of has the potential to shape discourse about the literature, you know, maybe that we love or, or the literature that we may be creating? Um, just like social media in general has done a great job of word of mouth that and discoverability that actually was kind of dying for a while because Amazon is like swept up through so much stuff you know I mean it's such a huge portion of the book industry right now like you couldn't survive without sales on Amazon but because so many brick and mortar stores went under because of it, like the actual browsing ability went down. Mm-hmm. Um, so discoverability is happening in a new way now, which is great because it started to kind of like get on shaky ground there for a while. Like how are people just randomly finding <laughs> books? Um, but TikTok and and Twitter and BookTube and all of those places are just great for getting word of mouth out there about a different thing. And it's really, it's great too, just how like short and curt it all is, right? Because it's just like, here, here's this great, little bit about a book right they're all bits right it's basically <laughs> i can't tell you how many screenshots i have in my camera roll right now of just a one or two liner from a book mm-hmm. and it grabs my attention yeah, and i'm yeah. like okay i have to read that book um yeah. it doesn't take much at all it's so great to have that kind of thing just like be out there and not to have to be in charge of it as the author <laughs> it's like so great <laughs> any marketing i don't have to do is perfect for me <laughs> seriously yeah that's really awesome. Yeah, I, it's, I think it's exciting, you know, to see these new spaces and, and to see, um, w- you know, whether they be familiar names to you or, or maybe unfamiliar names. You know, the excitement around books is just really exciting. I don't know, as a, a person who just reads incessantly, right? The excitement <laughs> around books is always just exciting. Yeah. So um, you talk in your bio about being a really big fan of board games. 
Um, what are some What are some board games that you know like are just the top tier for you? Pretty classic ones that I like to play with my family, like whenever we do the big you know group get together things. Um, so, uh, Ticket to Ride and Pandemic and uh, Settlers of Catan. Oh, we love Settlers. Yes, that one always. Weirdly enough, can spark fights. Oh yeah. Um, I'm not really sure why it's so contentious. Nobody but... wants your fucking sheep. <laughs> Nobody wants your fucking sheep. <laughs> that one is. That one's always interesting. So yeah, we play that one in um, like a, a tournament style sometimes. Oh, <laughs> we'll have like several oh, wow. out, and then we'll get down to the yeah. Um, Pandemic was fun until the pandemic. Somebody needs to quit playing yes. pandemic. They were like, that shit away. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> this is how you eradicate the thing. Why are we doing the thing to eradicate the thing? <laughs> I thought maybe it was like Jumanji. If we can beat it oh, on its hardest level, oh, goodness. maybe that would have solved it. Oh no. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> we really opened up Pandora's box. Yeah. Ah, put the red cubes back, goddammit! <laughs> Let's see. There is um. There's some that are not quite board games, although I guess there's a board. But uh, Secret Hitler. Oh my really god! Fun. Did you say Secret Hitler? Secret Hitler. Oh, okay. um, that new either. It's yeah. kind of like if you've ever played Mafia or Werewolf, but like a more like. Like, I don't. I don't think they've played either. I have okay. such a so, narrow experience I'll, okay. with board games. Go ahead. Yeah. I'll try to explain it. So, like uh, and, and correct me if I'm wrong. Checkers. <laughs> um, so, Secret Hitler is is. Uh, it's it's like a social bluffing game, right? So everyone is is given like a secret role. Um, and there's there's always like the people who are just normal, you know, normies in the government, and they're trying to um, ensure that fascism does not, you know, yeah, kind of you have take two over the you have two teams country. basically, liberals and fascists, and right. then you have roles on each of those teams. Right, and, and so there's um, there's like one char- one player in the group is is Hitler, and then another character in the group is like Hitler's SS, right, and they're trying to install Hitler as the leader of Germany and Hitler's trying not to be assassinated as the liberals are trying to assassinate him. Like figure out who Hitler is, right? Right. So you're trying to figure out, so it's all a secret game, so you know what your role is and nobody else does, and you're trying to basically um, figure out who's on your team and who's Hitler, and if you are a liberal, you're trying to either pass like a bunch of liberal policies before you accidentally vote Hitler as chairman, or or if you are a fascist, you are trying to get Hitler voted as chairman, basically, is, like, the two ways that you're trying to win the game. Yeah, and it's all about, like, all right, can I, you know, I'm going to ask this question here, or we're all, all going to sit down and be like, I think I'm going to accuse you of being Hitler, <laughs> you know, like, that kind of thing. <laughs> oh and it God. can be, it depends on who you're playing with. Um, so I, I've played with a lot of different groups, and so it seemed like fine. So it's like an version of Clue. A little bit, like, but you're all, yeah, in your own thing. Except somebody's Hitler. Except somebody's Hitler. There was one time where I played, like, with one group, and it was just, it was... A little different. It was bad. Like, some hurt feelings happened that, like, and you were like, you accuse me from being a fashion. You're like, yeah, but it's it's the game. I don't really think you're Hitler. It's okay. Oh, no. Oh, Oh, and then there was one time we played with an eight-year-old, and, like, the eight-year-old, like, you randomly get this sign. The eight-year-old was Hitler, and it was, like, it was so bad because, like, we had to have him not talk about the game out in public after that because it's like he he was he thought it was so fun but you cannot randomly have an eight-year-old saying he's hitler up in the middle was, you're like i was hitler, I was hitler. and you're like he, he didn't quite grasp that that was not a thing you should be saying he's, he so, thinks he's the reincarnation of hitler. no no he was, we, we, wasn't that an episode he's, of south he's park old enough with now like that, we have, that he's yeah. he's yeah. understands the yeah the actual connotations oh my uh, God. The reality there so eight-year-old just walks around going zig heil zig heil no 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 god no Please no. <laughs> I picture the cover of the board game being like Hitler, like peeking around a corner, going. <laughs> yeah, it's not. Luckily, it's not that. Uh, yeah. Oh my god. Oh, so yes, that's, that's wild. It's a fun it's, game, but yeah. also it's. We should. Here's an idea. We should all five come back and do a live podcast where we play Secret Hitler. <laughs> that sounds fun. <laughs> That'd be wild. That'd be a wild time. We'll have to video the whole thing too. It'll have to be yeah, a video yeah, one. Yeah. So. Um, I know that you've talked uh, again about video games, you know, like Final Fantasy yeah, yeah. kind of helping you 
um, or inspire you to write a book. Um, I, I wanted to just re revisit, you know, the idea of, of like games in general um, and, and whether you find them um, to be creatively stimulating. And, you know, are there are there maybe certain games that, um, you know, do that better than other games? They are absolutely creatively stimulating and they are also very relaxing. So like from both angles, they're great, right? It's a great way to like turn off your brain for a little while or to like dive into another medium of storytelling. Um, so video game wise, I really do enjoy RPGs and that kind of thing. Anything that's got a really in-depth story is great for me. Like The Witcher 3 is amazing. Mm. Also, don't get me like, as you are with Star Wars, I will I will go on and on about The Witcher. So I <laughs> we, we can do it. I, I'm here for it. Um, my my best friends, uh, he, he, he works for the NSA and he, he had a whole podcast where he and his wife um, for, for like a year and a half or something like that went through painstakingly every chapter of every witcher book oh, goodness. and talked about them <laughs> yeah that is very deaf but yes anyway so i can play i've played that game like three times over since i played it for the first time like two years ago oh, wow. <laughs> so it's that one's a really good one um but i yeah i love that kind of storytelling within games because it is very immersive but it's also easy to like taking chunks so you're like oh i'll just do this side quest and like you get that nice little story and then you can stop for the end of the day so it's, it's right yeah. kind of pick and choose your what, yeah. you're, what you're willing to commit to for right. a, yeah, yeah yeah i do i like that too so yeah so i think games are a great medium for storytelling and creative endeavors for me yeah for me video games are a huge deal for how my creativity launches uh, like music visual all yeah. that you know so. yeah mario is my that's <laughs> I, I played that Mario Odyssey game on Switch and I'm just like this game is perfect. <laughs> it's just so perfect, but not nearly the autonomy in a game like that as you get in, a, in an RPG. For, for those of us in the room who maybe are are kind of like new writers, um, how do you think you you know would recommend like fostering that kind of creativity or or kind of like um, using these different media in order to kind of inspire your own vision and give birth to your own voice? Give me a second to think about that one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I don't have a pat answer just off the top of my head waiting. Damn, Trevor. Um, let's see. Well, for one, um, this is very, it's hard to turn off story brain for me whenever I'm like, taking in other media right so i'm like watching a movie and i'm always like being like oh i know where this beat is going or i know you know like trying to predict it because that's just how your brain works um which is great really like i wouldn't trade that for the world <laughs> lots of people could just like sit there and like not think about it which yeah. which would be fun but i i enjoy picking things apart which i think goes back to my oh, whole yeah. like mystery thing um so i think just like being able to focus on different parts and be willing to like i don't want to say steal but be inspired to be like, I love the giant monster aspect of this or something. It'd be like, I right. still want to use giant monsters. And then think about how in a medium the giant monster has been utilized and what would be completely different about it. So being able to take everything that you consume and then put your own spin on it type of thing, you know, like it's, it's great for just accessing different types of mediums in order to add that all to your repertoire of tools. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's necessary to be derivative, uh, you know, like, it's not, it's not stealing, you know, you feel like you're stealing sometimes, but um, the fact that there are people out there consuming that, it's going to ring a bell if you uh, derive from it a little bit, yeah. and, and you'll get their attention, so nothing Imposter wrong with that. And, yeah. syndrome. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know all the time you get like, I'm actually bad at this, this isn't great, I'm, I'm never going to ride again. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think the reason I ask is just because, I, you know, having read so much of your work um i see a lot of different influences um and yet at no point in time do i i point to this influence and i i just say oh well that's just asimov or that's just simmons or that's just clark or you know whatever um i i think like there's some stuff in there that is reminiscent of these other writers um and yet they're they're so purely Rena lostetter right like they're so very <laughs> no really they're very distinctly yours and i and i think that um you know trying to capture that is is difficult to do consistently and i think part of it is when you're taking the inspiration it's like realizing you're not just trying to replicate the inspiration you're having a conversation with it right because mm. it, it has influenced you in some way and so you want to 
it wants to come back out again, right? Like right. it's gone in and it wants to come back out, but it needs to have come back out changed or, or what was the point, right? Like you have, you have chewed it over in your brain and it's meant something to you, but what was that? And so when it's coming back out, it's in conversation with what it was before, it's in conversation with how it's affected you, and now you're trying to put it in conversation with somebody else. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, are there any upcoming projects that you kind of want to plug for us? Anything I you're really excited about? A sequel to The Helm of Midnight, uh, which is called The Cage of Dark Hours, which will be coming out in February, so there's still a little bit of time there. But yeah. <laughs> so you have plenty of time to read the first one is really what yeah. I'm getting at. <laughs> I gotta say, for those of you who have not read this book yet, fucking read this book. It's so it's so cool. It, and um, you know, as with all of the things I think you do, it plays with some huge ideas that are just so far out there and yet so intricately done. Um, it's it's worth the ride, hundred percent worth the ride. So, um, what are the best ways to kind of support you and your projects? First, buy the books. <laughs> <laughs> Step one. Step one, spend money. Or you can go to the library. <laughs> go to the library. The library, they pay us. People don't seem to realize that, but libraries have to buy books, and they will give us money, and we love libraries. Libraries are great. So, if you don't want to spend money on my books directly, you don't have to. Go get it from a library. I can say this. I, I was introduced to you through Trevor yep. and through our, and I'm still counting it on my Goodreads, we mm -hmm. did an audiobook of Numenon oh, for oh. our endless drive up to Denver for StokerCon. That <laughs> infinite, it, it's kind of funny because we made the joke um, as we were listening to Numenon on the way to Denver. It was kind of like, well, we're on our own journey to you know denver is just our lick picks or whatever yeah you know it was like uh the whole time i was like i really resonate with these characters right now yeah. <laughs> they're stuck in a metal box just going and going yeah. and going except i never felt like i was the clone i always felt like i was just me just over and over, and over. Oh. um but i still i i want to get out and buy this book and buy buy other books of yours i oh, definitely want to support you um, and I'm upset you haven't yet. No, 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 no. no. Um, I mean, you did bring a big stack of books that I don't have, so I'm. Uh, I brought the coffee mug. <laughs> oh, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, are there are there any um, other ways uh, you know c to follow you online or? I am on Twitter at, at Marina Lostetter. Uh, lostetter.com is my website. Those are probably the two best places. I have an Instagram. I think it's Marina J. Lostetter. Uh, <laughs> you, you should be able to find it, even if that's incorrect. Um, <laughs> but I'm not on there all that much. So those are Twitter, definitely, I'm, I'm on quite frequently. Cool. Yeah, I, I, I never know what platform to use i'm much better at twitter than i am with instagram i'm terrible with it i don't i don't like taking pictures of myself like, we're word people right word people so words work <laughs> every one of my instagram posts has been just coverage of our books that's it just the cover of the book over and over and over again <laughs> yeah i mean maybe that's good enough i don't know maybe. I, I see all these other people who are like um check out me with my coffee you know and, <laughs> and i'm like man i wish i just looked better in the face for that sort of material i took like a close-up photo of this knob here and made it look artistic <laughs> that's my instagram Very nice. post <laughs> i i just wanted to add too you know i mean one thing we had mentioned to like k.a huff years ago or like years ago it was like last year when we interviewed her months ago it's felt like years after that denver trip it felt like years you um, really did go through some kind of wormhole i i i did i was really resonated with numenon and that's one of the ones i was telling trevor if there were books that we could have published that represent what Slayhouse, i think feels like it's like Numenon is one of those I wish we'd have been around and been like and had the resources to be like hey can we publish <laughs> can we? you <laughs> but those yeah, resources was, those are, yeah those resources we need yeah. um, but no we did we really love that book and I can't wait to experience more of your work and I say this because as our audience is growing I want to say be like you know this is the stuff we support and this is the stuff that we want you all to support and if you aren't familiar with it we want you out there and recognizing it and appreciating it and enjoying it. So that to be said, if there's anything you have that you want to send our way, you know, editor at slayhouse.com and help us to 
help you plug your stuff in the future as we keep moving forward or if you ever want to come back on the podcast please just let us know and we're awesome thanks we'll be here to help help you grow i mean i'm not i'm just i'm just chomping at the bit waiting for the sequel to helmet <laughs> I, I really am i'm super excited about that book um well thank you so much um for sharing this this time with us and interviewing with us and being so just so gracious yeah thanks for having me of course uh i think i want to finish off by saying thanks to everybody thanks to all of our listeners thank to our Thanks to our Patreon supporters. Thanks to the people who are recognizing our titles and our books. We have an anthology coming out in July. We have um, Curtis Harrell's Mel Pomini's Garden. We're going to be doing a cover reveal pretty soon. We've got three other books in the works right now that are coming out later this year. So this is like huge for like Slayhouse. Plus, we had that great time at StokerCon. The joke is, Marina, are you going to StokerCon 2022? Yes, there we are. So we're keeping that that, <laughs> that multiverse kind of time frame. I can't believe you roped her into that. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm 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 evil. Or did I go? Or did you go? <laughs> <laughs> Trevor called it Schrodinger's Con. Schrodinger's <laughs> Yeah. So we're there uh, right now. We're we're there right now. Are we ever not? We'll at be Stoker there tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you, everybody, and you can follow us on Twitter, Slayhouse, and at Slayhouse Litbit. We're on Instagram. We're supposed to be on TikTok, but we all suck at it. We might be hiring Kate to do our TikTok. <laughs> I would be happy to do it. So <laughs> uh, just stay tuned for everything we have, and we thank you all very much. Have a good day. See you.